the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Of all of my trips overseas, I think the one that stands in my mind the clearest, and perhaps the most indelibly, was one of many trips into China, having an opportunity to meet a woman who at the time probably was 80, 82 years old. And I recall first being ushered into this small room that was a living room of hers, um, in a fairly nondescript uh, section of uh, Beijing of basically uh, large apartment buildings. And uh, as we sat down and began to uh, converse, I noticed that her hands were badly gnarled, uh, reminiscent of somebody who perhaps has a, a severe diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. You see people that have their hands that are so knotted up and crippled and almost to the point of being deformed. And that typically is a sign of the impact of rheumatoid arthritis. So with that assumption, we began our conversation. And as we visited, slowly the story came out that during the time of the um, revolution that took place in the 1960s, the so-called Cultural Revolution, where a Maoist came in and uh, decided they were going to take everyone in the country that was educated, that he either had been a doctor or a professor or a school teacher, put them all out into farmland so they could be re-educated through labor and essentially turn over running of the operation of the country to uneducated peasants, that in the middle of that cultural revolution, there was a major clash that Christians found themselves in the middle of. At the time, in communist China in the 1960s, um, organized prosecution of Christians was even more severe then than it is today, so much so that merely possessing a Bible could land you in jail. The story emerged of this woman that hearing that the Revolutionary Guard had been making their way through her block, she had a Bible. She, of course, was a Christian. She took that Bible, wrapped it in plastic, and buried it in the ashes of her fireplace where she did her cooking. Unfortunately, much to her chagrin, the communist authorities were far more thorough than she expected, and after a thorough search of her home, they eventually uncovered the Bible hidden in plastic in the ashes of the chimney. When they found it, she intervened and quickly snatched the Bible back out of their hands and said that this was the most important link she had to her relationship with God and to, by all means, please not take her Bible. 
Well, the revolutionary soldiers argued with her. And finally they said, Woman, you either give us that Bible or we will beat it out of your hands. And beat it, they did. In fact, the condition of her hands when we met her in her early 80s had nothing to do with rheumatoid arthritis. She was, in fact, perfectly healthy. The terrible deformity of her hands was because she vowed not to let loose of her most prized possession, God's Word. As a result, they took a club and so badly beat her hands that they were horrifically deformed even 40 years after this event took place. This story left an indelible impression upon me meeting her because her story, while seemingly unique to the Western ear, in fact is demonstrative of what is in many parts of the world normative Christianity. And normative by that I mean the sense of persecution that Christians face. In fact, in many parts of the world today, the model of Christianity that you will encounter, whether you're in parts of Africa or the Middle East or Asia, looks much like the conditions that Christians were facing in the first century church, being persecuted simply because you name Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Some would argue that today there is seemingly a systematic global war on Christians, though it's not often talked about in the mainstream media. You won't hear it discussed on the 6 o'clock news. It won't be the topic of discussion around the water cooler tomorrow morning, and yet it happens. It is happening multiple times per day in upwards of what some report to be almost 130 nations across the world. Joining me tonight is senior Vatican analyst for CNN and celebrated author John Allen, who's penned a new book called The Global War on Christians. John, great to have you on the program tonight. Craig, it's a pleasure to be with you. We'll see if we can avoid some of those nettlesome, erroneous errors. Yes, <laughs> indeed. We'll just keep our facts factual tonight. Yeah. John, one of the big facts that you share inside the pages of this new book is the fact that there is an unprecedented level of... I guess systematic in some levels, in some ways, certainly systematic by that meaning that it is either an institutional attack on the rights and religious freedoms of Christians by governments, in the case of communist China or Vietnam, in other cases Christians falling victim and uh, becoming uh, on the receiving side of persecution simply because they are Christians and not of some other religion, Uh, for example, uh, what happens to people who convert from Islam to Christianity in countries like Saudi Arabia and others. Your book essentially takes us through every part of planet Earth and is kind of a glimpse into what is sadly a best-kept secret, and that is just how widespread the attack on Christians in the world today is. Yeah, that's right, Craig. I mean, I think our media does a creditable job of bringing isolated and scattered episodes of anti-Christian violence to us. I mean, you know, if a, if a church is bombed in Pakistan or if Christians are brutalized in Nigeria by the Boko Haram, we might hear about it. But what is never supplied uh, in those reports is the context. And the context is these are not simply isolated incidents. These are part of a, a broad global pattern. Now, I mean, to be clear... Christians are not the only group out there whose, whose rights are threatened, but I, I think they are the group that, that, whose story is least told. Uh, and they are those, statistically speaking, who are most often in the firing line. I mean, the, the estimate, uh, the low-end estimate for the number of Christians killed every year around the world for their faith is 9,000. The high-end estimate is 100,000. 
which means somewhere between 1 and 11 Christians are being killed every hour of every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. This is a global pandemic. This global pandemic, of course, um, is not altogether under wraps. We know that annually the U.S. State Department puts out a report on religious persecution around the globe. Sadly, five of the top uh, ten biggest um, offenders in this arena also happen to be some of the top five U.S. trade partners. Uh, countries like uh, Communist China, for example, where uh, religious persecution there is not necessarily at the hands of, of fellow Chinese as much as it is uh, systematic and organized by the state. How widespread is this sort of institutionalized level of persecution against Christians. Well, it's sort of a bewildering cocktail of forces out there that, that put Christians in harm's way. I mean, ranging from various forms of religious radicalism, not just Muslim radicalism, by the way, uh, but in India there was a rising tide of anti-Christian hatred being f- fueled by uh, radical Hinduism. Uh, in places like Myanmar and Sri Lanka, we're talking about radical Buddhism, but you also have to throw into the mix state-sponsored anti-Christian hostility. Uh, And, of course, China would be the leading example, but not the only one. You could also look to to states such as North Korea, uh, Eritrea, Belarusia. I mean, basically, any place there's a police state that sees religious minorities as a threat to its hold on power. Uh, You also have to throw into the mix uh, corporate interests in some parts of the world that don't like the stands that Christians take in defense of social justice. Uh, drug gangs around the world that don't like the, the stands Christian ta- Christians take against the drug trade. I mean, the, the list of, of potential oppressors uh, of Christians and other minority groups uh, is depressingly long, Craig. And sadly, for many of us in the West, as I say, and you pointed this out uh, throughout the book, The Global War on Christians, not that it never gets reported, but it's typically underreported or not contextualized. Uh, for example, I had a trip many years ago, first one into Indonesia, and we were treated to tours of burned out sections, literally block after block after block of homes and businesses that had been destroyed. And we were told that it had been part of a 1993 through 95 purge of Christians, my militant Muslims there, who were um, big supporters of the Suwarto regime. And this group of probably 15 journalists, we looked at each other and said, now, wait a minute, why don't I recall hearing anything about this? Well, the fact of the matter was that it was very well kept under wrap and apparently wasn't exciting enough to be covered by mainstream global news sources. And so, therefore, it remained a very quiet secret, a secret to everyone, except, of course, the families of those in Indonesia that lost their lives. This kind of a story repeated over and over and over again. Why is it that we don't hear hear more about this. We'll get into that part of the story. John Allen Jr. with us tonight. His book is called The Global War on Christians, Dispatches from the Front Lines of Anti-Christian Persecution. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If the statistics are to be believed, and there's no reason to doubt them, 80% of violations of religious freedom today are directed towards Christians. And yet, ironically, while it captures the news once in a while, as our guest today, John Allen, suggests, if it's a major firebombing of a church in Pakistan that kills upwards of 100 people, there's a chance that might make it to the news. But for the most part, a lot of these stories simply go without ever being covered or talked about in the West. Now, the fact that two-thirds 
of the world's 2.3 billion Christians live outside of the West. I suppose that says something, John, for those of us in the West. In other words, if it doesn't affect us or it doesn't affect me, it probably isn't important. Well, I think that's part of the picture. I think another part of the picture, Craig, in terms of why persecution of Christians struggles to to sort of break through the noise, uh, and and you and I are both media people. I mean, we understand the power of narratives in, in shaping the way the media approaches a story. The narrative about Christianity in the West, uh, which is badly outdated but but still around, uh, is that Christianity is this big, you know, massively powerful, wealthy, influential social institution, which makes it very difficult for a lot of people in our business to get their minds around the idea that Christians could actually be the victims of persecution. But as you indicate, that doesn't do justice to where Christians are today. Two-thirds of them, as you say, live outside the West. A solid majority of them are impoverished, living below the poverty line, hundreds of millions of them in extreme poverty. They are often also members of ethnic, linguistic, and cultural minorities, so they're doubly or triply at risk, and they often live in some pretty bad neighborhoods. Uh, You add all that up, it's no surprise that Christians often find themselves in harm's way. So what I think what we have to do is we have to change the narrative about who Christians today are and about where they are. Let's talk about that for a moment. Uh, Again, you know, uh, I think from sort of historical Western uh, Christian viewpoint, we think of the the roots that Christianity in the United States, for example, has coming from Europe. And we see Europe and North America as kind of the two um, strongest regions of the world that enjoy some of the largest populations of Christians. That, in fact, is a dynamic that has been changing. If we look at parts of China, we mentioned earlier, and Africa. They've got some of the highest growth rates of Christianity. In fact, if the government statistics are to be believed, in a place like communist China, more than 5,000 people a day come to the saving knowledge of Christ. That's a pretty significant number. And yet, I think you're right. Part of the problem is we don't really understand who the profile of today's Christian is. Well, that's right. We have a kind of mindset about Christianity that is sort of stuck somewhere in the in the 18th century. Uh, I mean, the, the truth is, I mean, China, you're quite right, uh, is a phenomenal growth story for Christianity. I mean, the, in 1949, at the time of the communist takeover, which was the last year that the, there was a national census that included religion, there were fewer than a million Christians in China. Uh, the estimate was about 750,000. Today, the kind of mid-range estimate is that there are 100 million. I mean, that, that's an absolutely astronomic explosion of Christianity. In fact, some projections are that by the middle of the 21st century, China will be perhaps the largest Christian nation on Earth, if not certainly in the top three. And of course, the irony there is that those are largely government numbers. They tend to always downplay these things. And, you know, when it comes to the largest portion of the population of the church there, the bulk of it is underground. I mean, they don't recognize the papacy. They don't recognize um, evangelical Christianity there. And so imagine if you were able to take a head count of the, the church, both above ground and underground, how staggering those numbers might look? Yeah, yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And, and you mentioned Sub-Saharan Africa. Christianity in Sub-Saharan Africa in just the second half of the 20th century uh, had a growth rate of 6,708%. I mean, almost 7,000%. I mean, you know, I, I don't care what line of work you're in. I mean, if you've got a 7,000% growth rate, that ain't too bad. You know, I mean, Africa has become the single great, single most uh, site of the most explosive growth of Christianity anywhere in the world. Now, 
you know, as Christians, we would rejoice in all of that. But, but the truth of it is, Christianity is growing precisely in those places where it is most oppressed. And of course, those two things are not unrelated. I mean, the, the ancient line from Tertullian that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the faith, that's as true in the 21st century as it was in the second. Uh, but it also means that an increasing share of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world are in harm's way, and they need our solidarity. Is part of the issue here, too, John, perhaps, that, uh, and, I, and I mean this slightly facetious and yet at the core, it's probably true, that these areas that are experiencing some of the most phenomenal <coughs> pardon me, growth are, are in badly need of a public relations firm? I mean, for example, the Church of Scientology, they would, they would like you to believe that they have millions of adherents around the globe when it, it, it's more like in the hundreds of thousands, and yet it's all generally about how you tell the story. The problem is that there's no real mouthpiece, so to speak, on behalf of the persecuted church in sub-Saharan Africa or in places like communist China. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is that those natural mouthpieces that we do have tend to have a built-in bias for telling only part of the story. I mean, the political right in the United States, for example, will often jump all over the persecution of Christians in Muslim countries because it serves their foreign policy agenda, but they go strangely quiet when it comes to the fate of Palestinian Christianity inside Israel. Meanwhile, the political left uh, will play up the fate of Palestinian Christians, but they don't want to talk about what's going on, say, in Venezuela or in other countries in Cuba, uh, other countries that have leftist governments. So both of the, the factions that tend to dominate public conversation in the United States tell us only part of the story. Well, and we ourselves have been... Like Christian persecution, I try to puncture... Uh, is that it somehow, but raising this issue somehow benefits either the, the left or the right. The truth is, persecution of Christians is an equal opportunity employer. Absolutely. And, you know, part of the problem here, too, I think, John, is the fact that we ourselves, uh, as a nation, have also been contributory to this problem. I mean, for example, with, with great uh, pomp and circumstance, we, we applauded the ouster of Hosni Mubarak of uh, Egypt, and yet we've spent little time focusing on the plight of Coptic Christians there uh, who are being persecuted in a very wholesale fashion. Then, of course, there's the great march on um, uh, Iraq, and uh, I, I would defy anybody to be able to put together a million Christians anywhere in the nation of Iraq today that they've all been pretty much eradicated and have run to other uh, neighboring countries because, at least under Saddam Hussein, while he was certainly not a nice guy, uh, was a secularist and largely left the, the church in Iraq alone. That has not been the case since the so-called regime change. Well, that's absolutely right. And if you talk to Syrian Christians today, they will tell you that they are terrified that exactly the same thing is going to happen to them. That is, a police state is going to fall under Western pressure. What's going to follow will be chaos in which all minorities will be at risk, but in the front lines of those at risk will be Christians who will be carrying bullseyes around in their backs. And in one of the things that I, one of the arguments I try to make in this book, when the question comes up, what can we do to help these persecuted Christians? One thing we can do is make sure that their voices are heard in our foreign policy debates. Before we drop bombs someplace, we might want to ask the people who have to live in that neighborhood, and in particular the Christians, what the consequences of doing so are going to be. 
Yeah, and the other thing, too, is that to, to erase the political blind spot, and we'll talk about that a bit more when we come after uh, come back after a timeout. But, you know, it, it's been interesting that, uh, for example, we will look at a country, a major oil trading partner like Saudi Arabia, and we are quick to criticize them um, for their treatment of women's rights over there. And yet we are hard-pressed to say anything about the way they treat Christians in Saudi Arabia. We'll talk a bit more about that political blind spot and what we can do to help better eradicate it. Our visit today is with best-selling author John Allen. His new book, by the way, an absolute page-turner. And if this is a topic that at all touches your heart, and I certainly hope that it is, certainly down through the years we've talked about this topic almost ad nauseum because I believe it's so critically important. I want to urge you to get a copy of John's new book. It is published by Image Press. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Those still exist somewhere, don't they? Or through Amazon.com. Let's take a quick time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation. John Allen, The Global War on Christians. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, when we think of the global war on Christians, and I will tell you, having spent time with these people in everywhere from North Korea to Vietnam to communist China and parts of the Middle East that I can't even mention, to a person they've all reminded us, as I've said, you know, as I go home to America, what should I be telling fellow believers? They've all said to a person, don't forget us. Please pray for us. Oddly, none have asked for a cessation of the persecution. I think that's largely because there's there's a degree of spiritual maturity to understand that as we see outlined in the the book of Acts and certainly historically in the first century church, um, persecution is kind of a normative Christianity. In fact, what we enjoy in the West is a very different type of Christianity, certainly than what uh, the founding fathers of Christendom went through uh, all those years ago. That said, though, there are more things that we can and should be doing than just praying for them. And as John Allen on details inside of his new book, The Global War on Christians, um, we have a political blind spot on this topic, John, sadly. And I mentioned before the break, I always find it interesting how we'll consider Saudi Arabia to be one of our major trading partners. It certainly is when it comes to the commodity called oil. We will whisper a comment or two regarding, oh, something concerning human rights and the way women are treated there but largely have nothing to say about the way the kingdom of Saudi Arabia treats Christians. Do we need to change this? Oh, of course we need to change it. Uh, And by the way, Saudi Arabia is a a fascinating case because, you know, when we look at Christianity in the Middle East, we tend to think of it as an endangered species. And, of course, you're absolutely right. You've mentioned the the, the way the church in Iraq has been gutted, uh, the threats faced by the Coptic Christian community in Egypt, Syria, other parts of the map. Uh, You know, the the estimate is that that Christians were almost 20% of the population in the Middle East in the middle of the 20th century. And uh, today they're around 12, and the projection is, by mid-century, there'll be six. People talk about an exodus out of the region, and yet in Saudi Arabia, there is a rapidly growing Christian community. There are now an estimated almost two million Christians inside the kingdom, uh, a million and a half of them being Catholics, uh, and that they're not native Arabs, they're not native Saudis. These are basically so-called guest workers, you know, Filipinos, uh, Koreans, uh, Vietnamese, Nigerians, Lebanese, uh, and others who have been drawn to work in the domestic service industries and the oil and gas business. Uh, who are uh, basically three times discriminated against, one as impoverished, basically indentured servants, 
two, uh, as lower class ethnic minorities, and three, as Christians. And I think on all three of those scores, we ought to be pressing Saudi Arabia to do a better job. Another case is um, North Korea. Now, I know North Korea is a bit of a sticky wicket, as the saying goes, because we're dealing with issues concerning uh, nuclear weapons there, which has been an ongoing battle and uh, and certainly one that will no doubt last for a long time to come. And yet even as Dennis, is it Dennis Rodman that's been in and out of the country? I think Dennis Rodman uh, that's been flitting in and out of Saudi Arabia and concerning Kim Jong-un as one of his best basketball buddies. And yet nothing is ever said about the fact that just simply possess a Bible in North Korea comes with a sentence of death. Well, yes. I mean, the the anti-Christian animus in North Korea is so grotesque that if you even have a Christian grandparent, you are disqualified from holding senior office in the military. You're disqualified from political life. You're disqualified from leadership positions uh, in industry. Uh, There are tens of thousands of Christians in North Korea who are languishing in what amount to religious concentration camps. Uh, tens of thousands more have been disappeared over the years. Uh, it is a nightmare, which is why every year, and of course there are organizations out there that rank countries in terms of how hostile they are to Christians, North Korea routinely finishes in first place. I actually, I, I almost hesitate to talk about North Korea in some ways because it can seem so uh, surreally hostile to Christianity that people might think it's a kind of unique case. The truth is, North Korea is merely the most grotesque example of what is truly a global problem. Indeed so. I mean, and I've shared with listeners on this program the challenges that I've had traveling in and out of some of these countries, and at one point uh, narrowly became a guest of the uh, uh, of, of the of uh, Vietnam because of uh, involvement with Christians there. I mean, the the issues that you speak to inside of the global war on Christians are very real issues, and I'm delighted, John, that you've in such a concise fashion given voice to uh, these fellow believers around the planet. I guess that the big question I leave you with is in terms of response. I, we mentioned earlier, certainly, to pray for them is, is first and foremost. What else can we do? How can we better engage um, on a political level some of these issues that's not our direct responsibility, but our elected officials in Washington, D.C.'s responsibility to say and do something about? Well, one, uh, in, in terms of the humanitarian level, we can support those organizations that are now and have been for years trying to deliver aid to Christians who are on the on the firing line. I mean, in the Catholic world, there are groups like the Catholic Near East Welfare Association, Aid to the Church in Need. In the Protestant world, there is uh, open doors and, and like-minded organizations. So reach out to those folks and, uh, and support them. Two, uh, I think we can uh, do everything we can to raise consciousness about this. Issue. Uh, I mean, you know, God bless our Jewish brothers and sisters. If anywhere in the world today a swastika is spray painted on a synagogue, by tomorrow they will have raised the alarm in a way that the world simply can't miss. I think we Christians can steal a page from their playbook. Uh, and third, as I said earlier, I think we can demand that uh, that our leaders listen to the voices of, of minorities, including Christians on the ground, uh, in our foreign policy calculations. I mean, I, I frankly think it's unconscionable that we could have been on the brink of going to war in Syria without stopping to think how that might affect the people who have to live with the aftermath of it. Uh, and so on all those levels, uh, I think there's a great deal we can do. Absolutely. And you 
mentioned some of these fine organizations. Uh, Dr. John Wombrandt, who had been a guest in this program many years ago, uh, his organization, Voice of the Martyrs, has also done a lot sure, to, to raise awareness. And, and all good organizations, and certainly ones that, as uh, John Allen points out, we need to be supporting. Uh, we need to be sensitizing our representatives. As he points out, you know, it's one thing to say we're going to go in and drop bombs or, you know, uh, put the bad guys out of business. But there are often significant consequences that come to all of that. I mean, I, if we could understand how the church in Iraq has just been torn to shreds because of U.S. military involvement over there, would we rethink that position? I'd like to hope so. Much to pray about. It's a uh, Again, a fantastic book. And, John, we hope to get you back on again soon when we can spend some more time. John Allen, author of The Global War on Christians, Dispatches from the Front Lines of Anti-Christian Persecution, the newly published book, again, um, by Image Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. An interesting new book out that examines America's enemies and our use of love for the underdog that ultimately trashes America and American power is penned by Michael Perel. Michael is a columnist with the Washington Times. You can also read his musings at townhall.com. He served as crisis manager for the 2003 Northeastern Blackout and a strategist for the Tea Party Patriots and has authored now a new book and called Underdogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the underdog to trash American power. And uh, Michael, good to have you on the program tonight. Thank you for having me here, Craig. I appreciate it. Uh, First, define, if you would, for us the title here. We know what the underdog is. In fact, American, I think largely Americans have always enjoyed rooting for the underdog. Uh, But when you speak of underdogma in your book title, what do you mean by that? Well, you're right. America was founded on an underdog uprising against a more powerful adversary, the British. But underdogma is far different. Underdogma is the widespread and corrosive belief that in any given issue, whichever side has less power, the underdog, is automatically considered righteous simply because they have less power. And whichever side has more power, like America, is automatically considered wrong simply because they have more power. And it doesn't matter which side is actually right or wrong. All that matters to those who practice under dogma is which side has less or more power. And in my book, I show how this under dogma shapes many of the issues that shape our world today. And I answer the question, I ask the question, you know, why is it that some Americans embrace American power and American exceptionalism while others feel the need to bow down and apologize for it? And then finally, I give readers the tools to fully embrace the idea of American exceptionalism unapologetically and to beat back and defeat this corrosive belief system that I've called under dogma. Let's spend some time analyzing this. You mentioned about the very roots of America, that is the triumph of the the underdog over the overdog, in this case, uh, the, the oppressive kingdom of uh, England uh, against the, the colonialists here in America. Um, this, of course, is something that I think has kind of set the stage for an interesting, uh, interesting dichotomy here in that as we move through then the subsequent growth and expansion of the United States in through the Industrial Revolution and modernization, 
globalization and then eventually, of course, the outcome of the Second World War, uh, America uniquely has always been on the, on the side of being ourselves the overdog, and yet we've always tended to have kind of this soft spot in our hearts for the underdog. Well, because America was founded on that underdog uprising, it's part of the national character. But here's where underdogma is different. Underdogma says that the first Americans were good because they were relatively powerless. But as soon as America became big and successful and powerful, America became bad. So power, Not- power equals bad and weakness equals good. Yeah, I describe it as an axis of power between the power-haves and the power-have-nots. The little guy can do no wrong, even when he does wrong. And the big guy can do no right, even when he does right. And this is where it separates our traditional notions of right and wrong. And wipes all that out and says, no, it only tilts on whichever side has less power or more power. Right and wrong objectively don't matter. And this is where moral relativism comes from. Boy, not only that, but the sense of entitlement, uh, what we're seeing going on with uh, this, this this sort of the uh, the Robin Hood, you know, shift to taking from the rich and giving to the poor that we're seeing uh, just, you know, blatant throughout government today. Um, this is really a dynamic that goes beyond, the, you know, simple power struggles between the United States and other nations. We're even seeing this dynamic at play within American society and certainly with the American politic. So much of the mentality that has crept into the American psyche on this topic is impacting our lives in so many levels. I mean, we've seen going back to Johnson's Great Society, the notion of entitlement creeping in, even the idea that if someone has has uh, come up by their own bootstraps, so to speak, and they've worked hard, they've gotten an education, they've sacrificed they put in long hours, their family has sacrificed. Now, as a result of the fruit of their labor and blessings, they have been successful at life. They've been able to enjoy a modicum of success and some wealth. All of a sudden, somebody comes in and now is of the entitlement mentality that because you have and I have not, what you have, you must give to me. Not only have we seen that dynamic play at play here, I think, in underdogma, there's also the notion that we tend to suddenly, as uh, author Michael Perel points out, blame the overdog and immediately cast doubt on on he or she or it, um, even in the face of reality that would demonstrate that it's actually the underdog that's the evil one here. You spend some time in the book on this point, Michael, and I think one of the easiest things that we can demonstrate with this notion is a lot of what we've seen in, in particularly in mainstream, so-called mainstream and liberal media post 9-11. Uh, th- this notion that somehow, well, what's taken place here is, you know, people that are victims of Americans' foreign policy and abuse and America standing up for totalitarian regimes like the Shah of Iran for so many years and, and even supporting Saddam Hussein, at least during the time that he was at war with, with our enemy Iran, to the point where what happened to uh, over 3,000 people on 9-11 was not the fault of the terrorists. It was really the fault of America. And it sounds crazy until you read their own words. So let me just reset the frame for people. This belief under dogma is a reflexive belief that the little guy is good, not because he's good, but simply because he has less power. And the big guy is bad because he has more power. So in the attacks of 9-11, there's a whole chapter I dedicate to this, and it's just shocking what happened. Because when that happened, 
the whole underdog equation was turned upside down. America was the underdog. And we clearly saw America's enemies were the enemies. There was absolute moral clarity for about six hours. And then it started to shift, and you saw this underdogma happening. And I take readers through step by step by step. So there's two parts of underdogma. Number one is the big guy must be the bad guy. Did we see that happen after 9-11? Oh, yeah. First, America was clearly the victim. And then we saw it creeping and creeping and creeping to maybe America brought it on itself. Maybe it was America's foreign policy. Maybe it was this, maybe it was that. Until it got to the point where high-profile Americans were blaming America for causing this to begin with. And the other side of underdogma is to deify the underdog, no matter what he does. Just because he has less power, he must be good. And if you think it's crazy that they tried it with the terrorists, they did. They went step by step by step. I have direct quotes from mainstream American media calling Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who planned the attacks, quote, thoughtful about his cause and craft and, quote, folksy. And I have five major American media personalities who referred to the 9-11 terrorists as courageous because they had the courage to fly plane loads of innocent people into buildings filled with other innocent people. That shows you the power of under dogma to completely sidestep the rational mind and get people to do these and say these horrible, horrible things. Well, to be sure, I mean, to suggest at any level that Khalid, uh, Sheikh Khalid Mohammed, the, the mastermind behind the 9-11 attacks is folksy, is like suggesting that, I don't know, uh, Joseph Stalin was just kind of a teddy bear. Yeah, you know, it just misunderstood. Water a whole population. It's just bizarre. You know? where, do, where does this stem from? Because I'm old enough to remember a time in this country, Michael, when it wasn't always like this. I mean, post uh, another major event on U.S. soil, and that was the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7th of 41, uh, Americans didn't uh, suddenly rush to say that, well, you know, it must have been that thing about, about America cutting off Japan's steel supply so they couldn't continue expansion into China and into Korea and the other neighboring countries there in the east. That must have been the thing. It's really our fault. You didn't hear that. What's changed? No. There, was a, there was a tipping point, and I peg the beginning of Under Dogma to the Berkeley student protests of the mid-1960s. Now, why did it happen then? And this was when, so just to, again, reset the frame, this is not people being against bad people for doing bad things. This is people being against those who have power, even if they're virtuous, what they're doing is they're fighting the power. And in Berkeley in the 1960s, that's when the, quote, fight the power movement began. And the reason why it began at that time, and I go into a whole chapter on this, is because that was the first generation that came of age in a country that was a superpower where they didn't have to fight for sustenance and fight to get by like their parents did. They were born literally at the top of the power heap in the world. And ever since 1989, all Americans have been the only ones at the top of the power heap. So this was the first generation, and when they came of age in the 60s, they were given all this power, and suddenly they were looking around, and they started to feel queasy about it, maybe apologetic about it. And that kind of thing is a luxury only afforded people who live in relative power and safety. People around the world don't bow down and apologize for power. They want to take it from you. You know, that's the reason why I wrote this book. I mean, while some Americans 
take exception to American exceptionalism and American power, America's enemies have a far, far different view of power in their own words. Let's take Osama bin Laden at his word. He said their view of power is this. When people see the strong horse and the weak horse, by nature they will like the strong horse. That's precisely the opposite of underdogma. And, you know, one of my favorite writers is Mark Stein. And he writes about America's demographic disadvantage to its enemies. They're having more kids, we're having less. In Under Dogma, I show how those who practice Under Dogma are putting America at a philosophical disadvantage to its enemies by championing the weak horse and demonizing the strong horse. The consequences of that over time are dire for America. Well, to be sure, particularly since we're no longer using as the yardstick um, things as righteousness and morality and goodness and fairness and fair play, uh, the kind of um, the kind of measuring sticks, the yardsticks that we were taught were measurements of, of virtue and wholesomeness when we were kids. At least I certainly was. Now all of a sudden, uh, we uh, we move to the notion that it's simply based on this one size. Yeah, it almost um, almost then in the end favors the bully, doesn't it? What it does is it shows, it, it shows you the power of this belief system to literally throw out our notions of right and wrong. I mean, we've all heard of moral relativism, but it's not, it's not an accurate term because it's only relative in one direction. You don't see moral relativists automatically, instinctively, taking the side of the powerful. <laughs> it's always on the side of the little guy. They're always excusing the actions and behaviors of the little guy, saying, oh, it's because of this, because of that. No, I mean, some things are just plain wrong. Well, look, for example, uh, one of the things that that has always frustrated me, and we've seen this rear its ugly head once again um, in in the wake of the recent uh, recession, and that is the idea that we see people that, uh, well, you know, so-and-so got caught stealing today, and it's because of the high unemployment in the region, and because there's a lack of parity in, in employment opportunities, and so as a result, people steal. And I've argued, well, let's go back to the last time that America really suffered economically, and that was not the Great Recession, but the Great Depression, where we had 25% of the the working public unemployed, uh, where we had no social network available, there were no uh, safety nets in place, Social Security, unemployment, none of that existed. And yet, very few incidences outside of the outlandish stuff like organized crime, that would lead to things like, you know, the, the Ma Barker and uh, John Dillinger. You didn't see average Americans going out to steal just to feed their families. No, they went out, they sold apples and pencils on the street corner, they bartered and traded, they did what they needed to, but we didn't see America become a wholesale group of thieves. And so I would argue that when we look at thievery, it's not indicative of somebody who's who's stealing because they're hungry and trying to feed their family, it's indicative of somebody that is living in sin, that's a criminal, and as a result is behaving in a criminal fashion. Absolutely. And those people who who dismiss it and say, well, they're just stealing because they're poor, they're profoundly insulting all the poor people in the world who don't steal. You know, I grew up poor. I'm pretty sure some people in the listening audience right now did, too. And the daily decision you make to be a good person, those who practice under dogma, throw all that out the window and say, no, 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 if you're the little guy, you can do whatever you want, 
and you're good. The little guy can do no wrong even when he does wrong. That's under dogma. Now, this, we're ta- what we're talking about here is, you know, power haves and power have-nots and rich and poor. It's power imbalances. And one way to deal with power imbalances is to, you know, get angry or spiteful or, or turn against those who have achieved success and power and just champion the underdog, the little guy. And what you're doing is you're celebrating his weakness. That's one way to do this deal with power imbalances. That's under dogma. Michael Farrell, my guest, the book Under Dogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the Underdog to Trash American Power. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.